0: Described as having, I'm dropping everything here, a sad, wonderful, and complicated life. He was born in Minneapolis, Minnesota, the son of a barber. As a child, he felt that he was never really able to achieve at anything. He never won a single contest, not academic or athletic He was terribly afraid of girls, and he was terribly insecure. Now, just in case you're wondering, no, I'm not talking about myself. (laughs) He was so uh, insecure, he was lonely, and he was standoffish. He went on to become a soldier, and he entered into World War II. He endured all the hardship there, only to come home and find out that his mother had passed away from a long and lingering cancer. That, coupled with a very painful midlife divorce, only sunk him deeper down in the hole. And then beyond all that, he had this nagging sense of inferiority and insecurity that dogged him his entire life. It tainted his whole existence including his faith so after enduring so much pain and seemingly endless anxiety attacks he decided to take all of that big ball of hurt and he poured it into a single character that he created and as soon as you hear this you're going to know exactly who i'm talking about about that sam he can play just about anything i (laughs) called him last night thank you sam yes you know him as charlie brown but he's reflective of this this man behind the character charles schultz and even as you watch the great pumpkin charlie brown you see the way his insecurity comes out in linus remember linus wringing his hands sitting in that pumpkin patch and what's he wondering is the great pumpkin going to show up is this sincere enough is this pumpkin patch going to be good now i believe charles schultz to be a believer as a matter of fact he stood his ground when the when the network tried to take uh, the bible verse reading out of the christmas special but he was still dogged by this lack of assurance as to whether or not he truly was saved and frankly i can relate to the struggle Uh, Well into my 20s, I struggled whether or not I was truly saved. If I was really a Christian, and if I was to survey this, this audience in front of me right now, I know, I don't suspect, I don't think, I know that there are those of you sitting there who either are struggling or have struggled with the very same thing. Now, uh, the question is, is, is that what God intends? Is it God's intention that we spend our life wringing our hands wondering, am I saved or am I not? And for that matter, what exactly was it that Jesus accomplished when he died on the cross for our sins? You can sum it up into this single question. What exactly did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? That's the question that I want to unpackage this morning. And it's foundational to the Christian faith. See, we're in this series called, Who is God? Who is he? And when Jesus turned to his disciples and asked them this question, Who do you say that I am? Their whole existence was going to be changed by how they answered Jesus that single solitary question, and it changes the existence for you and I today. Who do you say that he is? So I want to dive deeply this morning. If you notice that bulletin, the sermon notes page alone weighs two or three pounds. Uh, There's a lot there. And this is deep diving today. We're going into a very deep subject of what Jesus accomplished through his death. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. I want to go about it in three ways. First, we'll talk about that single question, what does it mean that Jesus died for me? What does that mean? People answer that a number of different ways. Secondly, did Jesus have to die? Was there another way? And then thirdly, what does that mean for us? And I'll spend the bulk of my time there because you are impacted in a moment-by-moment, daily uh, uh, basis. This is impacting you. It's impacting your life all the time in ways that, that you don't even realize. it. So we're going to go through this. We're going to answer these questions. And again, put on your scuba tanks because we're going deep today. So I want to start with that question, what does it mean that Jesus died for me? Now, this is often referred to as the atonement of Jesus Christ. And the word atone simply means to repair a wrong. Something was broken and it needed to be fixed. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to atone, to repair that which was broken, that which was wrong. So then, in the early church, not unlike last week, we saw they were grappling, not only with the person of Jesus Christ, But what did he do exactly? As a matter of fact, they're going to struggle with this clear up to the Reformation around 1500. So they're struggling with that question. What is it that he did? And they came up with some bad ideas. And uh, we're going to go through the bad ideas first. And I put some names there. Um, Nathan Holstein, Michael Patton, and Wayne Grudem are all authors and scholars I drew on whenever I was thinking through this. So first of all, what are the bad ideas? The first one is something called the ransom to Satan theory of Jesus's death. And this is what that is. This is what it means. By virtue of Adam's sin, all humanity was sold into bondage to Satan who had legal rights to them. Christ, by his death, made a payment to Satan buying them back and making salvation possible this is the view of the eastern orthodox church or most of the orthodox churches that this is what jesus accomplished um, through his death now there are some scriptures uh, that at first glance seem to back this up for example john 8 44 at the beginning you people this is jesus talking you people are from your father the devil and you want to do what your father desires speaking to these unbelievers Jesus says they are from your father, the devil. Now, it seems there seems to be a sense of ownership there, or that's the way they're taking it, that there's a sense of ownership. Um, And then when you couple that with this next verse, Mark 10, 45, it says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, at first glance, wow, it does kind of sound like Satan had some ownership, it sounds like. A ransom was paid however um, there's some problems with this Um, first of all it undermines the power of God to say that somehow Satan had this power that he was keeping everybody in this holding cell by his power and God had to comply to bust them out is undermining God's power secondly God not Satan is the offended party to whom the payment is owed It was God's justice that was violated. It is to him that justice is owed. And then thirdly, it is mankind that needs forgiven. Forgiveness is not accomplished in this idea of Satan having to receive some kind of a ransom. So I don't believe that the particular scripture from Mark 10 is talking about a ransom to be paid to Satan. More on that in just a moment. So this is the first bad idea. Secondly, is something called the moral example theory, that Christ came to show people how to live so that they would turn to him in love. His death was not required and has no atoning value. It serves only as a moral example for people to follow. Now, this is a very liberal view of what Christ did. Uh, This is what the Unitarian Church believes. Also, churches that have... The title progressive in their title, uh, rather in their, the name of their church, uh, would hold to something like this. The progressive uh, Episcopal churches hold this view of the, uh, the work of Jesus. And it's just to sort of motivate people to do the right thing. They would claim this is what uh, Matthew 10.38 says. This is Christ speaking. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Someone's not doing what I did. They're not worthy of me. Now, there's a lot of problems with this one. Uh, first of all, it undermines the seriousness of sin. Um, sin is a serious problem that separated us from God. And then secondly, it completely disregards all the biblical imagery of a necessary sacrifice. I mean, all through the Old Testament, they're having to kill animal after animal after animal, which really has no atoning value per se, but this was a reminder that the law is not cutting it. You're still sinning even though you have the law and then third christ's death has no objective value it's subjective into in that it just pushes you to do the right thing to love the way that jesus loved and to do what he did so there's a lot of problems with these Um, and then lastly there's something called the satisfaction theory the satisfaction theory And in this theory um, it says that the the sins of mankind effectively rob god of the honor due him as creator the death of christ being the obedience to death of a perfect man earns merit from god and this merit can be given to those who believe so it's the idea that god was dishonored because of man's sin he created everything creation fell now this Just to illustrate this, this would be like uh, Bill Gates or Bezos, these multi-multi-billionaires. Let's say one of them, on top of their riches, wins the lottery. Well, they really don't need that money. Therefore, they can be of benefit to other people by just giving all that away. Jesus already had all the merit he needed, so he gained this extra merit, being perfect and dying, and that is therefore available to men who believe. So... This also has its problems. This is probably why most of us here are are Protestant and not Roman Catholic. Um, First of all, it makes the atonement necessary, not only for us and our salvation, but for God and his honor. It's as though God lost something, and he needs to get it gained back. And then secondly, the focus is unduly placed on God's offended honor rather than on his perfect justice. It was God's justice that needed to be satisfied, and no human being could do that. God had to come himself to to satisfy the justice mandated, mandated by the good judge. So these are all ideas that have been kicked around. Some of them have caught on. Now, I think that the next idea is actually the best idea. You, uh, you always save the, the best one um, for last. So then what do we believe about the death of Christ? And I call this the best theory. Uh, this is the one that was espoused by the Reformers. So October 31st, let's go back in time for a minute. October 31st, 1517, a man by the name of Martin Luther takes 95 problems he has with the Roman Catholic Church and he goes and he nails them onto a door Uh, in a church in Wittenberg, Germany. This began a protest, a protest against the Roman Catholic Church. And that word protest, it stuck. That's why we're called Protestants, because we're just falling in line with that protest. I frankly don't like the title that much, but here we are protesting to this day. We're Protestants. And we're children of this reformation that happened. So the reformers got together, and they came up with something called the substitution theory. Stating the atonement is made on the cross when Christ vicariously, now vicariously simply means that that someone stepped in as a substitute for someone else. A vicar is a substitute that is sent in in the place of somebody else. Christ vicariously bore the exact penalty of his people, thereby placating or satisfying the wrath of God and satisfying his righteousness. This was the view of the Protestant Reformation. This was over and against what the Roman Catholic Church had been teaching and what they professed. And this is by and large what we hold to today, is this substitution theory. So, Biblically, this this means, first of all, that Jesus bore the penalty of our sins. And I'll go back to Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now here, I think the appropriate meaning of ransom, it means that he paid the price to set us free. Not because Satan was holding us ransom, but to free us from the powers of sin and death. See, that's what Jesus overcame. We couldn't free ourselves, but Jesus' death paid the price that sets people free. And not only did he pay the penalty, but he also became our substitute. And this comes from Isaiah 53:6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is prophetic, referring to, to what jesus christ would do he stepped in he bore the penalty and he was also our substitute so then what does it mean then that jesus died for me he bore the penalty of my sin and he was my substitute he was the sheep that took on the sin of the world There's some terms, by the way, there in your bulletin. I'm not going to go into those right now, but all those pertain to this substitutionary death of Christ. Um, So I would just take some time and look at those, understand what they mean. Again, this is about uh, providing depth to our faith. We are understanding what it is we believe, what it did, what it was in Christ's death that worked all these things out. And that moves us to the second question. Um, and I struggled with this as a young man for a long time. What does it mean that Jesus died for me? And then did Jesus have to die? Did he have to die? Was this the only way that this whole Christianity thing was going to work? Is for Christ to have to come and physically die? I mean, if, I'm sure maybe it's crossed your mind. Well, couldn't God have sort of made another way? Was there a different way he could have accomplished this? Well, let's first of all look at what Jesus had to say. Let me give a little background. After the crucifixion, two men were walking on a road to a place called Emmaus. And they're having a conversation about everything that had just happened. This man, Jesus Christ. They thought he was going to be the Savior of Israel, but now he's dead. Now, this is is so amazing. Like, after Jesus was resurrected, he's just kind of like... Coming around, listening into people's conversations. What are they saying about me? Wouldn't you like, like after you're dead, wouldn't you love to be able to hear what people were saying about you? <laughs> so he comes in and he interrupts this conversation these two guys are having, and he, under, he He sees that they're not really getting it. So this is what he says to them, Luke 24 verses 25 and 26. Oh, foolish ones! And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He's saying, look, this thing's been talked about since the dawn of time. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? He's saying it was necessary for me to die to accomplish the work that had to be done. These are the words of Jesus. I had to do this. The Old Testament laid out an extensive system of animal sacrifices to offer for the forgiveness of sins. But then listen to what it says in the book of Hebrews about these sacrifices. In this verse in Hebrews 10:4, it says for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Endless sacrifices of animals, they were only serving to reveal the old testament laws inability to perfect the Israelites they did not have the power to atone for sins but it showed those israelites look you've got the law but you are still sinning animal blood has no power to remove sin that leads us to chapter 9 verse 26 of hebrews but as it is he has appeared speaking of jesus once for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Our sins were conquered by the death of Jesus. And his resurrection is the evidence of their complete removal. Death did not hold him. The Father forgave the sins, and he raised the Son. Now, the implications for this are huge. They're absolutely huge. Um, you know, you and I are impacted again on a daily, moment-by-moment basis by the work that Jesus did for us. But you know, the problem is we forget. We forget what it was Jesus accomplished on practically a daily basis. Um, We forget that we are the forgiven sons and daughters of the King. So I want to move to this last question. What does this then mean for us? I want to talk about three ways Or rather, two ways. The, The last one will have three different parts. But first of all, it means that we trust the work of Christ. We trust the work of Christ. We trust that what He did was sufficient, it was complete. Christ Himself said, It is finished, it was all that was needed. And we can trust what it was He did. You know, whenever I'm changing Landry's diapers, and I'm hoping this, was going, this is going to end soon, but uh, we're not there yet, so when I'm changing his diaper, I put him on this really tall changing table. Uh, it's about four feet tall or so. And after we get that diaper changed, we have the standard routine. He gets a huge smile on his face, and he stands up on that changing table. And I take a step back, and he jumps smiling the whole time. See, he's got not one ounce of fear because he knows that dad's going to catch him. He's got complete trust and confidence. That is a picture of the trust and confidence you and I can have in what it was that Jesus did. He's never going to drop us. He's got us in his hand, and no one can take him out. So we can trust the work of God. And then secondly... You can enjoy your standing before God. You can enjoy your standing before God. And I believe there's three ways that we can do this. Um, And and these are three ways we can enjoy our standing before God while we're still here on earth. And first of all is by being assured of salvation. Being assured of salvation. I I told you this once already. I really struggled with this uh, for a long time. I really, all, all through my 20s, I would say I struggled with this assurance of salvation, and I don't know where you're at. You know, does it, there's nothing magical about the 20s. Tw- it could be your third, wherever you are. Uh, I think there's probably good many of us struggling through this, and I love something that uh, Bruce Demarest wrote. I'm going to make a plug for a book called The Cross and Salvation written by Bruce Demarest. I believe it was actually one of uh, Ken's professors when he was in seminary. He wrote, it's a fantastic book about diving deeply into this subject of salvation so I I recommend it but he talks about um, this assurance of salvation in his book and and he says this assurance of salvation can be expected to vacillate with our circumstances and feelings believers ought not be shaken by the presence of honest doubts in their lives They should be encouraged however that assurance of justification justification by the way is i'm going to give you the the earliest definition i got justification is god's forgiving you and treating you just as if you had never sinned that's justification standing rightly before god so um, that assurance of justification and salvation can be strong and vital as the writer of hebrews suggested to sorely harassed jewish christians let us draw near to God with sincere hearts and full assurance of faith. Hebrews 10, there's an There's an illustration uh, by George, I'm sorry, John Ortberg, and I'm going to steal it. Um, do you believe right now in my hand uh, that I'm carrying a $20 bill? Just if you believe that, you can raise your hand. Boy, (laughs) not a single one of you believe that I've got a $20 bill. Not not one, Not, not a, oh, thank you, Melody. We used to work together. Well, Melody, I'm going to crush your faith. Because see, now you no longer need to believe. Now you've got firsthand knowledge that I'm carrying a $20 bill. See, you doubted, right? You doubted. And when you have doubts, that means that you have to have faith. See, if you have knowledge, you don't need faith. Right now, none of you. Now, nobody doubts. Right now, you know that I was carrying this $20 bill. See, when knowledge comes, faith is no more. And I'm going to go on. I'm going to share something that Ortberg said. He said that sometimes a person is tempted to think, "I can't become a Christian because I still have doubts. I'm still not sure." But as long as doubts exist, as long as the person is still uncertain, that is the only time faith is needed. When the doubts are gone, the person doesn't need faith anymore. Knowledge has come. So don't get discouraged. Whatever the smallest, minutest amount of faith is, the the scriptures call it a mustard seed. That is all you need to be saved. The tiniest amount of faith. So don't let Satan steal your assurance. His number one attack on believers is try to convince you that you're not really saved. You're not really forgiven. That stuff you did, it's still out there. And I'm going to nag you about it and nag you about it as long as I can. He stands in the throne room of God accusing you, as a matter of fact. But see, we've got the truth. We accept it by faith. Right now, faith is the necessary ingredient. But you can have assurance of salvation. If if you're in the pit right now of doubt... Don't get discouraged. Keep plotting. Keep doing what you know you should do. Keep showing up. Um, So first of all, um, be assured of your salvation. And And another way to enjoy our right standing before God is to cast off guilt. Enjoy it by casting off guilt. We can have a number of different sources of guilt in our lives Um, There have been a number of pastors that have gotten into the pulpit And you may have heard this If you backslide, you're not saved If you backslide If you did something this week You said H-E double toothpicks Whatever it may have been You need to get back into salvation right now Let me tell you something Your actions no more unsave you than they saved you Your actions didn't save you, and your actions are not going to unsave you. So that's a source of guilt that you need not have. There's a number of other um, sources of guilt. I know I've struggled with it. Um, I, I want to share something else from Demarest's book. He said, unfortunately, certain Christian churches have been legalistic, more negative than positive, stressing personal wretchedness rather than God's grace in Christ. Other believers may have had imposed upon them the unrealistic burden of sinless perfection which insists that God accepts them only on the condition that they be perfect. The solution to this unreasonable sense of guilt is to recall that the omniscient lawgiver and judges declares believers not guilty and indeed clothes them with the righteousness of Christ. Um, We're pardoned. And this is something that we can enjoy. Enjoy the fact that you have been set free from all this guilt. There's other forms of guilt as well. And I, there's another one that I want to mention because guilt can be a good thing. If you are in sin, you need to confess. So in that sense, it can serve as sort of internal alarm. And I, this is, again, from the Cross and Salvation uh, if Christians deal with sin in a constructive manner, guilt will serve as a positive internal alarm system for our behavior in relation to God's righteous law. So confess it, accept forgiveness, and move on. Don't let it dog you. You're forgiven. 1 John 1:9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's it. There's no need to ruminate on it. There's no need to think about it. You say your apologies, you ask for forgiveness, and you go. So you can cast off the guilt. And then one last way that I want to mention is by casting off perfectionism. Casting off perfectionism. According to Christian psychologists, this is the number one problem among evangelical Christians. Is they want to be perfect. They want perfection. And perfection can be defined as... The attitude and behavior pattern that seeks complete attainment of the ideal. You're seeking the ideal right now. But notice it's an ideal. Ideally, Adam and Eve would never have sinned. Ideally, we wouldn't screw up every day. But we do. And if you don't, uh, a surefire recipe for disillusionment and frustration and discouragement is to expect perfection in yourself or anybody else. Um, There's a lot of false beliefs out there that the only way you can feel good about yourself is if you meet a certain standard. And if you don't meet that standard, you don't deserve to feel good about yourself or anybody else. And if you, that can produce this unexplained anxiety, depression when you fail. You're going to avoid a lot of things altogether out of fear of failure. That means your house has got to be spotless. The kids have got to be just perfect. You're going to be hypercritical of other people. In his book, The Search for Significance, uh, McGee addresses, the, the author Robert McGee, he addresses this perfectionism. He says, The tendency, this tendency, suffocates joy and creativity because any failure is perceived as a threat to our self-esteem. We develop a propensity to focus our attention on the one area in which we failed rather than those in which we did well. It keeps you from taking healthy risks. So what does that mean? I mean, what is the truth of this? This ideal that we think we can have now, and I'm going to go back to Demarest. He says, Christians should not engage in the impossible pursuit of perfectionism because God views, listen to this very carefully, both our person and our labors as pleasing and acceptable to him through the work of his son. Now, what does that mean? On any given Sunday, guess what? Imperfect Chad stands up here And he delivers an imperfect sermon to imperfect people from imperfect homes with imperfect kids living imperfect lives. But guess what? Because of Christ, God finds it all acceptable. Not just we as people, but our labors. See, Jesus did the perfect work. We do the best. We take our best shot. And God accepts it. That doesn't mean we try to do a bad job. But we don't worry and fret and get depressed when we don't do the job we think we should because God finds it acceptable. Putting all this together, simply enjoy the hope of your salvation. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. You're free. If you are here and you've trusted in the person and work of Jesus Christ, you're set free. And that's to be enjoyed. I want to close um, with a story of a guy by the name of, his name was Henry Gunther. He was actually the last soldier to die in World War II. I'm sorry, it was World War I. And he was a private with the American Expeditionary Force in France. He was killed at 10.59 a.m. when the arms disagreement went into effect at 11 a.m. on November 11, 1918. Now, he was part of this squad, and they came up on a a German blockade. Now, his superior ordered him, do not engage, but he ignored it. He attached a bayonet to his gun and began running to that blockade. The German soldiers knew about the armistice, and they're trying to wave him off. They're trying to tell him to go back, but he doesn't. So he's shot. And it says in his divisional record that almost as he fell the gunfire died away and an appalling silence prevailed see you and i have peace with god through christ but we can still live as though we are at war with god so lay down your arms and enjoy christ's victory please pray with me we have a victory to enjoy Lord because of your work Jesus Christ we can speak freely to you right now we can speak to the Father now we can speak to the Holy Spirit now and I pray that we would not get bogged down with the anxieties of perfectionism the anxieties that come with a lack of trust anxieties from a lack of Assurance, a worry uh, over our salvation that doesn't come from you. Once we have trusted in your saving work, we have no reason, we have no reason to worry about anything else. And the only thing we have to fear is you yourself. I pray that you would impress these truths deep upon our hearts. Lord Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you for coming. And for dying and for doing for us what we could never have done for ourselves it's in your holy and precious name we pray amen we're now going to go into a time of communion and every year the united states celebrates something called armistice day it's actually coming up on november 11th it's that day we celebrate the victory that was won the victory where other men laid down their lives And died for us to enjoy the freedoms that we have when you and I take communion we are celebrating the victory that Jesus won on our behalf we commemorate it monthly not annually but as we are taking that bread and that juice this morning think about the victory that was won on your behalf through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ